When it comes to dams operated by the federal government, most of us tend to think of the big ones named after former presidents. But the Department of Agriculture plays a little recognized role in managing the nation's dams, too, tens of thousands of them. Most of them are relatively small, and they're showing their age. But USDA's Agricultural Research Service has found innovative ways to extend their lives and prevent potentially catastrophic floods. Dr. Sherry Hunt is a supervisory research engineer who's led ARS's work on this topic, and she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. She talked about her research and USDA's role in dam management with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. USDA is the engineer of record of approximately one-third of the 90,000 dams in the national inventory of dams, and nearly 12,000 of these dams were constructed under the authority of the USDA Small Watershed Program. Now, the vast majority of these dams provide flood protection, but they also provide other benefits, including things such as irrigation water um, for your crop production. It provides rural municipal water supplies, so huge benefit of economic development for rural communities, uh, increased wildlife habitat, um, among others. So that is a little bit of the role we play, getting the water to the agricultural land for crop production and that flood protection. Very interesting. So, and then as, as far as the subset of dams that are actually are vulnerable to failure, what did you find makes them vulnerable? What are some of their characteristics? Age is probably one. <laughs> of course, of those 12,000 dams vulnerable. The vulnerability is age. Just like any other infrastructure like buildings, roads, bridges, dams can also show signs of age. And a large percentage of those 12,000 dams that I mentioned um, are designed with planned service lives of 50 years, with construction dating back as far back as the 1940s. These dams have experienced a lot of changes, like uh, deterioration of structural components, sedimentation of the impounded reservoirs behind the dams, and changes in the landscape surrounding them. Take, for instance, it may have been constructed to protect agricultural land, but now you may have millions of people downstream. Now, does this mean that these dams are in imminent danger of failure? No. It just means that we need to pay closer attention to them, just like any other infrastructure, and determine when it's time that they need to be upgraded. Yeah, and upgrade is, as I understand it, really the only option on some of these, right? Because at least in some cases, there's been some urban or suburban encroachment that just makes it not really feasible to do a full-on replacement. Is that about right? That would be correct. Some are now landlocked, and so you have to come up with creative ways to upgrade these dams. In some cases, if the benefits are no longer there, it may mean decommission the dam. So take the dam out if they're no longer providing a benefit to the community. So yeah, tell us about some of the the interesting ways that you found to upgrade these in lieu of decommissioning them or replacing them. Well, as a scientist, I work with a team of engineering uh, support personnel, and we develop standardized design guidance to rehabilitate or upgrade these aging dams. An example of this design guidance is for roller compacted concrete step spillways. These are spillways that have many advantages over other alternatives, but um, for instance, they can be placed over the existing dam that may be landlocked by residential or commercial properties. 
The construction materials are more feasible as they don't require reinforced steel that many conventional concrete uh, designs require. And they can provide shorter construction schedules because of the nature of the construction practices in which they are placed. Another example of the work that we are doing is working with collaborators at the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service and Kansas State University, where we are developing technology to analyze the potential of earthen dam erosion processes and failure as a result of water either spilling over the top of an existing dam or water coming through an internal hole within the dam. So we've developed software known as WINDAM, which stands for Windows Dam Analysis Modules, that can provide information on such things as the timing of the failure of the vegetation or rock that may be on the downstream slope of the dam, the erosion rates of the earthen materials, the breach width, and the timing at which the reservoir impounded by the dam is drained. I'm trying to visualize, for example, the, the roller compacted concrete example that you talked about a minute ago. What does that actually do in terms of providing additional safety? Um, how does it interact with, with the water behind the dam or, or potentially spilling over the dam? So the roller compacted concrete is actually a dry mix of concrete. It, when it is laid, it, it comes up in a stair-step fashion. It's placed over the existing dam, so if there is a extreme uh, storm event that comes through, the water rises and spills over the top of the dam, which then goes down this stepped spillway. And so it allows the water be to be slowed and move on downstream to uh, lessen the impact of the erosion in the downstream channel. And what are what are some of the things that you and your team actually did to figure out these potential future causes of failure so that you could design these interventions? Well, some of the things we do is take a look at case studies from historical documentation, look at construction as built. Um, we are starting to get into real-time data monitoring and inspection, but also just the real-time uh, dam breach incidents and failures and going out and doing forensic investigations can all provide clues into the causes of failures. We then take that information along with the increased knowledge that we obtain from our research to develop additional research plans to better understand those mechanisms that trigger a dam failure. For instance, how well is the vegetation maintained on a dam? If these are constructed in rural environments, has there been cattle left to graze on these dams that may have uh, trampled down the vegetation and therefore cause an initiation point for erosion to occur. We also have learned how the soil materials are placed with regards to soil type, soil moisture content, soil compaction energy, and what role that plays in how fast or how slow erosion processes may occur uh, during earthen dam failure. And so I guess the last thing I wonder is, based on everything that you and your team have learned throughout this process, is there information that we have now that, that would tell USDA how to build a dam in the year 2021 that we just didn't know in the 1940s? Yeah, there's been lots of lessons learned. Technology transferred from our uh, research as it relates to the performance of embankment dams and related structures that provide practicing engineers with knowledge in making adjustments to their construction practices of new earthen dams. 
you know, there was quite a bit of workload and a lot of technical experience, even back um, in the 1940s when these dams were first constructed. But an example of something we've learned since then is just a slight change in the moisture content of a soil placed in an embankment can have very different differing results in the timing of, of a breach. Therefore, practicing engineers can take this information and knowledge today to make stronger dams. In addition, our research provides engineers with the tools to identify how to prioritize existing dams for rehabilitation and upgrade. Um, so the research provides them with more information and how well the dam will perform. So a lot of information is garnered from the research over the years to make improvements along the way to uh, lessen the vulnerability a dam may have. And can you think of a specific example of a dam that actually has failed that wouldn't have failed if one of these techniques that you that you talked about had actually been employed when it was built? So in 2018, I was uh, invited to travel to Wisconsin, southwest Wisconsin, to take a look at five dam failures that occurred um, during a storm event of extreme rainfall over a short period of time. And that is just one example of water had spilled over the dams and there were vulnerabilities at which the soils were placed and how it was tied into the natural landscape. Had we had that information back then, it may have caused the design engineers to rethink how that dam may have been placed. Dr. Sherry Hunt, Supervisory Research Engineer at USDA's Agricultural Research Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Find all of our interviews with this year's Sammy's finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. 
It's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.